text I referenced this morning. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's Matthew 1.23, very famous text. In Matthew 21.22, we read these words. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. The prophet that Matthew is talking about here refers to Isaiah. We don't we're not going to take the time, but if we dove into the text, Matthew 1.23, you would see that there are aspects of Isaiah 7.14. Well, I'll tell you what the text says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will, she will call his name Emmanuel. That's way back here on the Bible timeline. It's Isaiah 7.14. Portion of that text was uh, borrowed by Matthew when he writes his own gospel. There's a portion of Isaiah 8.10 that's there too. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. You shall call his name Emmanuel, for, which means God is with us. And then another text that's uh, utilized by Matthew in the gospel that's found in Isaiah is Isaiah 9.6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now note well Matthew's words in verse 22 once again. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, okay? Spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Interesting. That which is spoken by the Lord through prophets ends up being written script, the book of Isaiah. God is said to speak through prophets by virtue of what they not only say, but write. Very interesting. Some in our day want to describe the relationship between the Old and New Testaments as the new, reinterpreting the old in light of our Lord's coming. In other words, these old Isaiah texts that Matthew uses didn't really, apart from the incarnation, point to Jesus, but now they do, and Matthew can do that because he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There needed to be more sour-looking faces when I said that. Reinterpret the Old Testament in light of Christ, casting new meanings on old texts, meanings that were not intended by Isaiah himself. Okay, that, that, that's a theory that's going around there, and I'm saying, no, that's not what's happening. Listen to the words again. Now all this took place, what the angel had revealed to Joseph and all that stuff. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, a virgin shall, shall be a child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. 
The better way to view the relationship between the old and the new is not that the New Testament writers are casting new meanings on old texts, but that they're exegeting Jesus' incarnation, sufferings, and glory in light of the original intention in the Old Testament. In other words, before the incarnation, the Old Testament witnessed to Christ. It pointed to Christ. It pointed to the Christ who would come. This, this, is, this is not just the ability of holy men to kind of look in the future, okay? This is the Lord speaking through the prophet about the future. That's what we call prophecy, okay? There is no way Isaiah, as holy as he might have been, could have seen the incarnation, you know? You, you don't see that far ahead in time. Creatures in the image of God, fallen, and even redeemed, don't know the future. We can guess about it, but we don't know it with any degree of certainty. We can say, thus and thus, I plan to do thus and thus, but we should say, if the Lord wills. Remember that important qualifier. Now notice these words again. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us, if the Lord wills. No, the Lord wills it. Okay? First, he announces that he he wills it in the prophets, and then he wills it in space and time. Remember, I've said this before. In one sense, we could look at the New Testament sermons in the book of Acts and saying, this is that, this, this incarnation, this holy thing, Luke 1, maybe it's Luke 2, in the womb of Mary that shall be called the Son of God, that shall be called Emmanuel, that is God with us, is that which the Lord spoke about through the prophets in their both public preaching ministry and for us, their writings The intention of these ancient Isianic, there's a new word, you can go home with that one, Isianic texts is to point forward to the incarnation of the Son of God before the incarnation of the Son of God. So that when Matthew is referencing these texts, texts, he's not casting new meanings on old texts. He's interpreting the texts as divinely intended and applying them to the new situation, namely the fulfillment of the words. Christmas, in quotes, is the fulfillment of the Lord speaking through the prophets in the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, the New Testament views the Old Testament that way, as a, as a messianic document that produced messianic believers who had a messianic hope prior to the incarnation of the Messiah himself. And apart from the self-witness of the Messiah, the Old Testament doesn't become a messianic book when Jesus tells us it's that. Jesus tells us it's that because he interpreted it properly. Not because he made the Old Testament something it was not. Now, Matthew 1.23 conflates 
takes together and uses aspects of these three Isaiah texts that I mentioned above. It does so right after Matthew says, now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. This, all this took place, refers us back to the words of an angel the Lord revealed to Joseph. Listen to those words. Here's Matthew 20, 1, 20 and 21. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, so this is special revelation, ultimately, the Lord speaking, not by a prophet, but this time by an angel in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. That's Matthew 1, 20 and 21. Now listen to 1, Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying. Okay, when you read it like that, you go, uh, what the angel is announcing through a dream, what the, what the Lord is announcing through an angel through a dream is actually what the Lord said through the prophets a long time ago, and at least three Isaiahic witnesses can be called to that end. Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 8.10, Isaiah 9.6. That's what's happening there. So we can say this, this teaches us that, the, that Matthew viewed the event of the incarnation as a fulfillment of Old Testament teaching or prophecy on its own, okay? Isaiah standing just on its own is a prophecy of the coming incarnation, the three texts he references. And this is prior to Matthew writing. Do you think inspiration was like, oh, okay, Lord, I'll say that. All right, all right, Lord, I'll say that. It's, inspiration of Scripture is actually weirder than that. God is using the intellectual faculty, the cranialness of the human authors to think through the events that they've witnessed and utilize other documents, primarily the Old Testament, um, to, to then write under the guidance and superintendence of God that which we call the Gospel of Matthew in this case. Matthew's not just receiving everything. You know, like in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord, the Lord said, spoke to me and said. And then the prophet writes it down. That's a little different than what we get in Matthew. We have the su same superintendence of God so that we have an infallible, inerrant uh, result, the written scripture, but the mechanics of inspiration is what I'm getting at here, is that God is using Matthew in, its, in, his, in his full intellectual abilities to think through the Old Testament, the information about Christ that he had to interact with. So the Old Testament predicted this on its own prior to the writings of the New Testament which is prior to the incarnation. 
So as Matthew reflects upon what took place with reference to the infant Jesus, he interprets it in light of what the Lord had already said and meant through the prophet Isaiah so that we can say this, the New Testament does not reinterpret the Old Testament in light of the coming of Christ. Instead, Christ is interpreted in light of what the Lord said and meant in the Old Testament as he spoke through the prophets. See the difference? Well, if you don't, I'm not going to say tough. I'm just going to assume you either do or you're starting to get it. The New Testament is a written divine announcement asserting that what the Lord said through the prophets in the Old Testament would happen, has happened. Okay? This will happen. This has happened. Get it? And both the Old and the New Testament are the Lord speaking through the writing instruments that he uses. So that when we read their, their writings, we say, this, though it was written by Matthew or Paul as a human instrument, as a human penman, ultimately the author is God. God the Lord, through the prophets, said Christ Jesus would come into the world to save sinners in space and time at the apex, we call it, of history, uh, the history of redemption, when the fullness of the time had come, God did what he said he was going to do, and then what did God do? God recorded the fact that he did what he said he was going to do. God acts. God raises up somebody to write about his act, and he might, in the raising up, say, you know what, I'm going to act in the future like this. Then God acts, and then God records the acts and interprets the acts through the writers of Holy Scripture. You know that we don't have the right to interpret the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ whoever, whatever way we want to. Uh, I think I've told this story before. There's a guy I went to seminary with. He was raised in a liberal Presbyterian denomination. And out in the front of their church building on the property, they had a cross out on the grass. And the pastor used to quite often say, you know what that cross signifies? That plus sign out there? Plus sign. It's not a negative sign. God's not negative about you. He's positive about you. God has good thoughts about you. God's on your side. God's this. God's a, you know. And he didn't understand vicarious, substitutionary, wrath-bearing, sin and guilt-exhausting, fountain of uncleanness for uncleanness that's never-ending. He didn't understand grace because all he thought was this guy's reinterpreting the death of Christ as God being for us instead of it is finished. You know, I have drank the dregs of the cup of damnation to the bottom. Instead, it was this, you know, Plus sign. We don't have the right, the liberty to interpret the redemptive historical acts of God however we want. We have to receive the revelation from God. So God said through Isaiah, this is going to happen. It happened through Jesus, and now God raises up, in our case, Matthew, and says, told you, it happened. I said I was going to do it. I've done it. Uh, I guess our response to that ought to be hallelujah or something like that. You know, we can say all we want. I'm going to do this. Honey, I promise you. Kids, I promise you. Dad, I promise you. But we can't ensure the fulfillment of our promise. Dad, I promise you, I'll, I'll, I'll mow the lawn on Saturday. On Thursday, you wrecked your bike and broke your leg, and you can't mow the lawn on Saturday. 
We can make promises, but we can't ensure the fulfillment of the promises against all enemies and all odds. You know who can? God. You know who does? God. You know who will? God. And we need to know that because that gives us comfort in our time of times of difficulty. Okay, really quickly, contemplation, the incarnation and doxological reflection. Oh, only two, very quickly. The biblical doctrine of the incarnation reveals to us that God is providentially active in this world and it manifests the truthfulness, the incarnation, manifests the truthfulness and trustworthiness of the written word of God. God is active in this world. How did Isaiah, how did the product that we call Isaiah come into being? Well, God was providentially uh, uh, preparing Isaiah and then he providentially and mysteriously inspires the product, the thing, superintends the thing that he wrote to accurately reflect everything that God wanted it to wanted him to say. And it all corresponds with reality. It's all true. It's inerrant and it's infallible. God has to be active in the affairs of the world in order to produce the written word of God. God is active in the, in the world. God has produced it. But also, we, we learn from the incarnation, an act of God in the first century, sufferings and glory of Christ. We learn also this, the veracity of that word of God, the truthfulness of that word of God. Like I said, we can make promises, but you can't take them to the bank. You can take God's promises to the bank. Cash them in. Believe them. Trust them. You say, well, life's hard sometimes. Does the Christian religion promise to all its adherents an easy life? No. Matter of fact, you read the New Testament, it's a whole lot of persecution and sorrow and difficulties going on. Through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. But if God has once promised that no matter what goes on in my life, I can be safe and secure in this. I am in the hand of the Father. I'm in the hand of the Son. I got the triple grip of God because the Holy Spirit has sealed me unto the day of redemption. That is in the Bible. Therefore, in one sense... I don't care what comes into my life because it doesn't change the truthfulness of the written word of God. So we should gain comfort about the veracity of God's word. God said it was going to happen. God made it happen. And then God tells us it happened. That should secure uh, our hearts. And then secondly, this biblical doctrine of the incarnation informs us as to why it took place. Um, you know, why? Why the incarnation? Why did the Son of God become flesh, as the Apostle John says in John 1, 14? The answer is in our passage, Matthew 1, 21. He will save his people from their sins. By the way, I was trying to go down a track in my mind that I read this week in Cyril Alexandria, 4th and 5th century uh, Egyptian theologian, Christian pastor. Uh, and he was talking about the... Uh, the irony of the incarnation, that God the creator, God the son, assumes creaturely nature. The same creaturely nature that the devil beat the first Adam in, on the same 
turf. He was born this side of the fall into sin into an ugly world, worse situation than Adam the first, right? We could call it a wilderness. And Cyril's basically saying, he's kind of looking at this from the outside, just look at it. What a strange design. The, the creator assumes a creature's nature to beat the devil on his own turf? against all enemies and against all odds? What an odd thing. This is one of the reasons why it was foolishness um, in the first century. It was like, okay, so this is your great Christianity, your great Christian message. God assumed a body and a soul. And he, through death, is going to conquer the devil. That's what you're telling me. You know what we say now? Well, it's not what I'm telling you. It's what Scripture teaches. Why the irony? Why, why does it come about in a way you wouldn't expect? Uh, why? Why? It's God's way. First of all, the devil got to a man who came into the world apart from a woman, Adam, And God says, oh, that's the way you're going to do this? Then I'll get to you through a woman without the use of a man on your own turf. And I'll destroy your works. So there's this way that things go about that you'd say, well, if I'm God, I'm just, like I said, I'd flick the ants off the globe and start over. Well, that's not his plan. His plan is to save that which was ruined by the strong man, the one who is stronger than the devil, and comes in and plunders his goods out of his own house. The prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world. Now the rule of this world shall be cast out. So someday I'm going to quote the Cyril quote. I didn't take the time yesterday to type it out. I should have typed it out, but it was amazing. I'm just sitting there going, oh man, you got me outside watching the incarnation going, look at all the ironies that are going on here. God is going, through the weakness of the flesh, God is going to beat this strong man by a stronger man. The necessity of a two-natured redeemer comes in there too, because it can't just be man. It's going to be a little stronger than just man, and yet very man We need a very God mediator, and yet a very man mediator. And that's exactly what we have. Praise the Savior now and ever. Praise him all beneath the skies. Prostrate, lying, suffering, dying on the cross, a sacrifice. Victory gaining, life obtaining, now in glory, he doth rise. Well, I think it's should be good reason to praise him. So let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll have the supper together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for uh, raising up prophets and apostles to write scripture, to record for us great words from God, great deeds by God, and the interpretation of those words and deeds in subsequent 
later scripture writers, like we had in Matthew chapter 1 in our meditation. Uh, Burn it into our hearts. Thank you that what took place in the first century is exactly what you orchestrated, what you planned, what you promised through the prophet when he said what he said in the book of Isaiah. Thank you that you have the ability, you're willing to, and you have the power to reveal promises and to ensure that in every single instance, the promise is brought to its end or fulfillment. Thank you that you tinker with this world, that you are active in it, and that you are moving it and shaping it and one day we'll renovate it by the work of the mediator. Now we come to the supper. It's a holy time. It's a sacred time. It's a necessary time. We need this means of grace. We need you to bless it. We ask that you do so in Jesus' name. Amen.